If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons at greendreamer.com slash support. And this month, our work is also supported by Conscious Step, a fair trade, got certified organic cotton socks brand that donates to a cause for every pair sold. What really stood out to me is not just the fun variety of nature inspired prints that their socks have, but also the variety of causes they support, many of which help to address social and environmental injustice from rainforest and ocean conservation, access to clean water, education, combating violence, and more. If you're an avid listener of this show, you know how important it's been for us to really find the connections between different social and environmental concerns, and I just really appreciate our alignment there. So next time you need new socks for yourself or for loved ones, you can shop their socks at ConsciousStep.com and use our code GREENDREAMER for 20% off. Again, it's ConsciousStep.com and GREENDREAMER for 20% off. African Americans who earn fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year, making them suddenly middle class in most parts of the country, they are much more likely to be exposed to environmental toxins than our white Americans who earn over ten thousand dollars per annum. Profoundly poor. Profoundly poor white Americans have less, less exposure to environmental toxins than do African Americans. And our country's history of forcing African Americans into living in certain areas has really been the cause of this. De facto segregation has not only continued, it has escalated, it has actually gotten worse. That was Harriet Washington, an award-winning medical writer and editor, and the author of A Terrible Thing to Waste, and also the best-selling book Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. In her work, she focuses mainly on bioethics, the history of medicine, African-American health issues, and the intersection of medicine, ethics, and culture. So listen on as we discuss why environmental injustice is not just a matter of socioeconomic status, but also about race, how standardized tests such as the IQ test created by the Western education system based on the things that Western cultures value have been used as tools to perpetuate institutionalized injustice and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. (laughs) 
Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I was interested in bioethics before I even understood that it was a discipline. Possibly before it was a discipline, because I worked in hospitals for a very long time, both as undergraduate student and after I graduated. And working in a teaching hospital in upstate New York, I had occasion to see a great deal of healthcare disparities, a great deal of disparate treatment, not only of patients, but also of staff. I knew things were profoundly wrong, but no one was talking about healthcare disparities in the 1970s and 1980s. So these were things that I perceived that I knew were transpiring, but there wasn't any interest in people pursuing them or quantifying them or even admitting that they existed. And I felt that was profoundly wrong, but I also knew I was unequipped to do anything about it. I wasn't a writer yet. I was a pre-medical student, actually, and it just seemed more prudent to keep my head down, you know, Mm -hmm. and make observations, but not really sure what I would do with them. And as time went by, um, I became less interested in the practice of clinical medicine and more interested in in the ethics component. But again, I frankly did not have the training to investigate it as I should. So I had a practice of collecting information without knowing what I was doing with it. And eventually, when I stopped working as a medical social worker and as, as I ran the poison control center at the hospital for a while, I worked in a lot of laboratories as a lowly technician. And I moved over into journalism. And that's when I began to see an outlet for this. So I began addressing it to some extent, but not very profoundly, until I was page one editor at USA Today. They had a loaned editor program where editors would come in from other papers around the country. They would come to Washington, D.C., work at USA Today for a while. And while I was there, I learned at Harvard actually had a competition for journalism fellows. They had a program where they would bring three people onto the medical center to be the medical writer in residence for a year or so. And in my case, I won the fellowship and I spent two years at the Harvard School of Public Health. And that's where I began gathering the information that would allow me to put my concerns and observations in context. Mm. I followed that up with a fellowship at the medical school in medical ethics. And now I felt that I had the um, requisite philosophical basis, historical sense, and vocabulary to analyze what I had learned. And I used all that to write medical apartheid. And since then, I've been focused pretty heavily on medical ethics and medicine, although there are other things I'm interested in as well. And I've had a chance to pursue them. I did a book on infectious causes of mental illness, something I think has been had been neglected for a very long time, but is now gaining some traction uh, as people recognize that not just psychological pressures and stresses, but also infection are some causes of mental illness. They, they often help trigger mental illness or even come predisposing factors. So anyway, I've been really fortunate, I think, to take my passion for seeing justice in medicine to a level where I can communicate with other experts and with the and with laypersons about mm. the issues that threaten threaten us most profoundly when it comes to making sure that medicine lives up to its stated ideals. So I feel really fortunate. 
So one of your most notable books is Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. And this was, as you mentioned, the first and only comprehensive history of medical experimentation on African Americans. I'm assuming you wrote this because you couldn't find such a compilation of information and focus on this angle out there. So is this history something you feel that the average person or even the medical community has a lack of awareness of? And to our listeners who may never really have thought about this, what do you think is most significant for them to know and keep in mind? Well, there's several questions there. Let me take the first, your observation about there being a vacuum of information about this. There is indeed a vacuum, but it's more than not having it addressed. I was rather surprised to find out that this has been, if not a conscious decision, a systematic decision. On 2001, I went to Lübeck, Germany, for what was billed as an international conference on the history of medical experimentation. And I got there and discovered that it was there were a lot of Europeans, there were some Americans, there was one Russian that I recall, and one person of Asian descent, I believe she was Japanese. That's it. It was not global as I would define global. It was not international. There was no one there from Africa. There was no one there from the developing world of the global south. And as we presented our papers and had our discussions, I thought, what a great chance to talk to all these inter, you know, international experts in the history of medicine and talk to them about what I should be sure to include in this book that deals with how um, American medicine has treated African-Americans. Every person I approached told me, there's really nothing there. There's a Tuskegee experiment, but nothing else happened. I said, well, I'm finding quite a bit. They said, oh, those are all conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Well, I knew they were not because I garner almost all my information from sources that are respected by, you know, medical scholarship in the pages of medical journals, in doctors' memoirs themselves, in government records. So all these things happened, but none of these experts were willing to admit that they had happened. Certainly none of them had written about them. And I realized that the... um for whatever reason, the decision to exclude this part of history of medicine is something that was essentially agreed upon. And I found that totally unacceptable. So I did not have much difficulty in finding information. In fact, my big challenge was to turn in a book that, as my editor said, would not have 700 pages and cost $100. <laughs> so I, the problem was like just culling from all the information I had. So This was unfortunately an example of censorship for whatever reason. And that really disturbed me, but it also um, fired my determination to make sure the book was completed and published. So something you've really shown as a fallacy is researchers using the IQ test to determine intelligence. And this assumption that IQ equals intelligence is so pervasive that I think is it's important for us to unpack here. What exactly does the IQ test actually measure and what environmental factors might affect it, which shows that it's not a test of hereditary intelligence? Exactly is probably the wrong adjective, but what IQ tests measure is achievement, educational achievement. An IQ test will tell you how literate you are. It's telling that the SAT test, although it makes no claim of measuring intelligence, is used as a proxy for IQ in many situations, including college admissions. 
but the SAT test, like the IT te- IQ test, does a good job of telling us how many words have you mastered and how many words can you use correctly. What's your literacy level? Also, IQ tests do a good job of measuring your ability to manipulate numbers in prescribed ways. So can you do the kind of mathematical functions we expect someone to master at a certain age? Now, what's interesting about this is we're talking about learning. We're not talking about innate capacity, which is what IQ tests are often described as measuring, but they don't measure. And there are quite a few pieces of evidence for that. Um, One is that something called the Flynn effect. James Flynn wrote a book in which he documented how in in our country and in much of the West, IQ points have been rising steadily three points per decade over a long time span. Now, does rising IQ test, does that mean that we're getting smarter? Or does that mean that education has become more commonplace? Mm-hmm. In a society like ours, where education is compulsory, does it mean that more people are learning to read, at least to, to a certain level, and that more people are learning to do basic mathematical functions and analytic reasoning? That's much more likely than supposing that for some reason, human beings in one country have suddenly begun to get smarter and smarter. Also, people often point to IQ tests as a proxy for intelligence. But if you look at the most commonly used book that purports to rank countries by IQ, what you find are you have rankings where the U.S. is around, you know, covers just about 100 normal IQ. But you look at the countries in the global south, in depressed areas, in areas with a great deal of sickness, and you find very low IQs. In fact, in Africa, the first edition of the book found that there were only two countries in Africa where the average IQ was over 70. 70, by most measures, is a cutoff for mental retardation. So what the authors were actually saying is that all of Africa is mentally retarded. Now, that's unlikely, but it's even more unlikely when you look at the populations that they looked at to do these tests and their methodology. Incredibly sloppy, incredibly poor methodology, often relying on very old tests and often relying on constructs that we wouldn't even recognize as tests. They were a little bit too diffuse. For example, in Ethiopia, which they ascribed an IQ of around, um, I think in the high 60s initially, it might even have been in the 50s. They determined that by looking at over 100, around 130 children in one orphanage in Ethiopia. The orphanage was filled with children who had survived war, genocide, the death of their parents, and starvation. This is not a representative sample for many reasons. First, they're kids. First, they've been orphaned. They've been starved. Tra- they've been traumatized. And not all the children had, were tested in the language in which they were proficient. You know, these IQ tests ignore the fact that in a lot of societies, being literate is not a const- constituent of intelligence. In our, in our country, we can't imagine calling someone intelligent who can't read and write. But the reality is in, in many countries and societies, being able to read and write has almost no bearing on your ability to make a living care for your father, family, do all the things that we think intelligence helps us to do. In many countries, agrarian societies, what makes more sense is 
looking at how well a person can read the landscape, how well they can determine you know, which plants are helpful and harmful, which helps them survive. They have very, very different criteria for intelligence. We completely ignore that. And we mm-hmm. test them on the procrustean bed of our own IQ. The things that make sense to us, that constitute high intelligence for us, are the things that we test them on without acknowledging the fact that they may have nothing to do with their life. One researcher said, an IQ test can tell if you'll be a good office worker. It can't tell that you'll be a good farmer. So there are all these reasons why IQ tests are frankly nonsensical. The bias is not sufficient a word to describe it. They simply lack context and they lack any kind of um, linkage to what's really intelligence. You know, we have to acknowledge the fact intelligence varies from area to area. What's intelligence in the U.S. may have nothing to do with what's intelligence in Malaysia or what constitutes intelligence in a different part of the world. So this kind of ignorance is really driving a lot of um, bias against people of different societies. In fact, none of the researchers with whom I spoke was able to give a really cogent definition of intelligence. We don't even, we can't even define it. And yet we feel perfectly comfortable, some of us, in deciding that some people, as a result of IQ tests, show that they are less intelligent than than we are, than others. It's really no accident that um, Europeans from industrialized countries and Asians from certain countries, not all Asians, tend to top these um, measures and that people of color are at the bottom. It's a clear indication that we've got this profound lens through which we are seeing intelligence and we're trying to force everybody onto it. Right. So it seems like these, a lot of these standardized tests, they're really narrow-minded in what they measure, and perhaps they've been used as a tool to justify and perpetuate this institutionalized racism. That's exactly what they've been used for. I, I detail in the book, and Stephen Jay Gould also details in his book, The Mismeasure of Man, and, oh, also, wonderful book, Robert Guthrie, Even the Rat Was White. <laughs> He was a psychologist who looked at psychology in the U.S. and with deadly accuracy, he he denuded a lot of the rampant racial bias in testing and assessment. And yes, all this was indeed a tool of impression because from the Victorian era in the 1800s, when you had this new piece of scientists called the American School of Ethnology, one of their tenets was that Africans and African-Americans, they didn't really distinguish between the two, were lower in intelligence than whites, profoundly lower in intelligence than whites. And quickly, after a time, scientists began to prove, I use that in quotation marks, this by collecting data about African Americans. But as Gould masterfully outlines in his book, even though these tests were very detailed, collected enormous amounts of of data, they were, A, often nonsensical, like Morton, George Morton, who had a collection of hundreds, if not a thousand skulls of different races, and he painstakingly measured the volume of the skulls and decided that the lowest volume skulls were the least intelligent people. And of course, it was completely unscientific. Not only does skull volume and brain volume have not to do with intelligence, he he didn't have quick for the fact that some of the skulls came from smaller people. So they're Brain volume might have been relatively larger than the others, but he didn't acknowledge that fact. So it's completely absurd. And yet 
What I find very interesting is that from the beginning, the scientists who have espoused this hereditarian view that intelligence is racial and passed on genetically, they have taken care to use a great deal of data. Spidery columns of numbers. I don't know about you, but I think like most people, I see enormous numbers of numbers and manipulation. I'm immediately intimidated. Mm. I think most people have that reaction. And that's something that they capitalize on. Think about the bell curve. I mean, there is so much data in the bell curve, so many graphs, so many illustrations. I'm not sure that most readers of the bell curve even understood the graphs, understood their context. But they impress people. So that's something we have to be very careful about. I also want to talk a bit about um, one of the things about environment and intelligence is that because of this, we've inherited this body of work from hereditarians. And we have all these scientists that are present-day hereditarians, not only scientists like um, Charles Murray of the Bell Curve, but even James Watson, who's revered among geneticists for having been awarded the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA. These scientists are, they believe in inherited intelligence. They believe that African-Americans are less intelligent than whites. And they always use a belief in a genetic propensity to intelligence, but there's no gene been found for that. And I've heard this prediction ever since the 1960s. Every decade, a prominent scientist like Watson will say, we're going to find the gene in 10 years. And it's mm -hmm. never been found. It doesn't exist. But what does exist, profound evidence that environmental exposures profoundly affect what we think of as intelligence. Right. You know, the ability. Yeah. So the example I use in the book is uh, salt. The fact that um, in 1924, there was a 15-point gap, which is the IQ of some Americans and others. Hereditarians today point to the 15-point gap between African Americans and white Americans. And they say, there you have it, proof positive that African Americans are inherently less intelligent than white Americans. But in 1924, we had this gap, and scientists were worried about it, not because of intelligence. They were worried about it because of goiters. They knew that having an iodine deficiency would lead to a goiter, which is like an unsightly lump in the throat that usually is not life-threatening, but sometimes requires surgery. It looks terrible, and they wanted to eliminate goiters. So they began adding potassium iodide to salt. It was cheap only cost $2 to infuse a ton of salt with potassium iodide. And soon, iodized salt was common, just like it is today. You find it everywhere. And as iodized salt began being used commonly, years later, I think only 20 years later, when they did testing for the army of soldier recruits, they found out that soldiers from the um, low IQ area now had the same average IQ as everybody else. That 15-point gap had been closed. They were shocked to see this. And only now do we, now we realize that iodine deficiency can cause mental retardation. In fact, it's the largest cause of mental retardation in the world. The people who had had a 15-point lower IQ had it because they were iodine deficiency. When they began taking enough iodine, it was closed. So we closed that 15-point that gap in 20 years very cheaply by adding iodine to salt. Mm. And that's a powerful point 
piece of evidence that shows how powerful the, your environment is when it comes to determine, determining your IQ. And of course, by extension, in many people's eyes, to determining your intelligence. I don't think that IQ actually denotes intelligence, but it does denote one's you know, educational achievement, how well one has learned, which can be an indirect indication of a problem with your, your intelligence. So it does a very good job of, an IQ gap does a good job of showing that something has happened to impede your learning, but it does not, and it actually was never designed to designate how intelligent you are in comparison to other people. It was never designed to do that. Right. So I guess it shows more of the circumstantial factors and environmental factors and privilege as well compared to who you actually are as a person. And you focus a lot on environmental racism that you just touched on, which you said initially you didn't want to talk about environmental issues through the lens of race, but you realized that was absolutely necessary. Can you illuminate for us why indeed this is a racial issue and not simply a socioeconomic or class issue as many people presume it to be? It's often been assumed to be a socioeconomic issue. We can talk about why later, but that has been the presumption, and that has been the context in which not only news reports, but some scientific reports have placed it. They have started with the assumption that socioeconomic, and then look for socioeconomic cues to it. But what we have come to learn is that it's not socioeconomic. With better data collection, better analysis, we have learned that if you look at the points where IQ and exposures to environmental toxins coalesce, these are racially mandated. So it, it means, for example, African-Americans who earn fifty to $60,000 a year, making them suddenly middle class in most parts of the country, they are much more likely to be exposed to environmental toxins than our white Americans who earn over $10,000 per annum. Profoundly poor. Profoundly poor white Americans have less, less exposure to environmental toxins than do African Americans. And our country's history of forcing African Americans into living in certain areas has really been the cause of this. In fact, segregation has not ended. You know, it ended legally. The law struck down segregation in the 1960s, but that was de jure segregation. De facto segregation has not only continued, it has escalated. It has actually gotten worse. Mm -hmm. I spoke with David R. Williams at the Harvard School of Public Health, and he pointed out to me that if we wanted to achieve parity so that black people and white people lived in the same areas, 66% of African Americans would have to move. So African Americans have always, in our country's history, been trapped in areas where they're exposed to environmental to toxins far more dramatically than were white Americans. The only group for which the situation is even worse is Native Americans, who often are deprived of the very services that run through their lands. I mean, you have many Native Americans living in areas where um, electrical cables go through, where water pumps are active, and they don't have access to clean water or electricity. So basically forcing people to live in these environmental sacrifice zone, um, zones is something that has happened throughout our country's history and has got to be addressed if we're going to like achieve parity and remove the disparate assault. So it's interesting to point out though, that not until Monica, um, what's her name? I shouldn't be blanking on her name. <laughs> um, 
I'm going to mangle it. So I'll just have to tell you what it is later. No I'll, worries. We can add that yeah. to the show notes. I think it's Atarishi. But anyway, she's a pediatrician who wrote a paper in 2016. Up until that point, all the newspapers and all the medical reports discussed the poisoning of Flint, Michigan, in areas of Detroit, as if they were socioeconomically based. And all they all did. She was the first one who confronted it and said, no, look at the data. Exposure is stratified by race. And I think part of the confusion stems from the fact that I'm not saying that socioeconomics is not a risk factor. It certainly is. Poverty is a risk factor for greater environmental exposure, but it's a weak one in comparison to race. Race is such a stronger one that eclipses poverty. So I think people are much, in general, are more comfortable with acknowledging socioeconomics than they are with acknowledging race. What does it say about your society if one has to admit that I live in a country where people of color are forced into environmental sacrifice zones? That's an ugly thing to have to admit about your country. And it's much more comfortable to say that, oh, it's because they're poor. You can't be blamed for poverty in the same way that you can be blamed for racism. Mm. Poverty can be you know, portrayed as a tragedy, but racism definitely has, a guilt, has guilty actors, you know, if not consistently, at least initially. And that's why I think people are very uncomfortable with facing this fact. So a lot of things that black and brown people and native peoples disproportionately face from air pollution to food deserts, food swamps, chemical toxicity, all of these things really interact with one another synergistically in ways that you right. say are not yet quantifiable by research. So I guess the question that I have is, isn't so much of this intuitive? And do we really need to wait for decades of real life experiment causing harm to people in order to know for sure that the compounded effects are serious and then have enough data and proof of harm to show the government that this is not acceptable? You're absolutely right. Of course we don't. But guess who thinks that we do? Mm. Industry. It's, you know, the interesting thing about these continued escalating demands for more and more proof of something that is clearly a hazard. For one thing, that's something that happens in our country doesn't necessarily happen everywhere. The precautionary principle is that principle that says um, if you have strong suspicion of harm, if you've got a correlation that points to harm, it makes more sense to address it than to wait for all the data to roll in. That, data, that kind of data collection takes decades and can be very expensive. And during the time that we have had to amass data to satisfy industry, that they're really, their toxic you know, exposures really are harming people. How many you know, IQ points have we lost? How much illness and death has ensued? So you're absolutely right. One of the things that happened to me in the course of writing this book was my definition of an industry scientist changed. I used to think of it as a scientist who um, you know, was paid by industry, who made his living working for industry, whose title reflected the fact that he was an industrial scientist. But now I've come to view an industry scientist as someone, scientist working for anyone, a university on his own. But as long as she is working and being paid by industry, she is working for industry because industry will not continue to pay a scientist for results that put it in a bad light 
for results that fail to support its stance. And the stance of um, doubt, of casting doubt on the seemingly clear hazards posed by these chemicals, it's not only a scientific stance, it's also a profitable economic stance. It's the most profitable way for industry to go, to deny the harms as long as they can and as effectively as they can with lots of data is their key to evading responsibility. And scientists who they pay to do research, again, will only be paid as long as their results are in line with the industrial stance so that they are actually are working for industry and they are using their science to perpetrate industry's denial of culpability. In my classes, I taught about one scientist who um, he talked about the fact that when he was doing research on atrazine and found that it caught and sterilized frogs in extremely low concentrations and found that in turn, farm workers and people who were exposed to it were also having productive problems. Then the, he says the first reaction from the people who had hired him was, here are some statistical tools you can use to basically make these effects disappear. Mm. And um, he wouldn't do that. And as a result, he now has a very contentious relationship with, with this industry. But um, it's the kind of manipulation and the kind of embracing of doubt that is really problematic. We really need, part of the problem, I think, is that we tend to have a lot of testing of industrial chemicals that people will have proximity to. A lot of testing that either is flawed, doesn't work well, or we simply aren't testing enough. After someone is harmed or their claims of harm, then we'll do better tests, more tests, which are not always better tests. And we have to revise the way we do tests. We have to be more like the European Union and demand more tests before people are exposed and also be a lot more discriminating and demanding about the quality of the tests that we perform. Because sometimes, um, in fact, often tests are done at thresholds with the assumption that no one's harmed below a certain threshold. That was an assumption we made with lead for a very long time. Now we acknowledge that no exposure is safe. But I remember in the 80s when I worked at the Poison Control Center, we were only recommending people be seen or treated if they had what looked like enormously high levels now. So um, we really need to revise the way we do testing, and we need to be much more, much more discriminating when it comes to rejecting the doubt espoused by industry. Right. I think a lot of the general public may feel like we should get our information as much as possible from research. But at this point, we also have to question how that research was done, how it was set up, and who was funding it as well. So not all research can be 100% trusted. Well, this concludes part one of our two-part conversation with Harriet Washington. And you can stay tuned for part two coming soon, where we're going to talk about what the medical industrial complex is and how it's really crossing the lines in finding things to profit off of, how public health threats to people of color really should concern everybody in a society, and more. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. That would make me so happy. And again, as we're working to reach our Patreon goal as soon as possible in order to keep this show going beyond the summer, if you're learning from the podcast and plan to keep tuning in, please become a patron today starting at just $2 per month at greendreamer.com support. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We appreciate you so much and your commitment to a better future. I will catch you soon in the next episode and take care in the meantime.